son is voting for Jack Cause he's got what all the rest lack Everyone wants to back Jack Jack is on the right track Cause he's got Welcome back to the Kennedy Dynasty Podcast. I'm your host, Allison, once again. And yeah, I'm kind of getting back on a normal schedule now after the whole election episode saga. That was really fun to do with uh, Ryan, and I'm really appreciative of him coming on. But I do have another guest today, and I'm really excited for this conversation, and I think it's one that needed to be had. I hope you guys really enjoy that. But before we get to that, I am going to do my news segment. Big news story of the past seven days. Okay, I'm sure most of you saw this, but if you didn't, you have to go look this article up. I read it on Vogue, but it's literally everywhere. It's all about last week, Eunice Kennedy Shriver wore her grandmother's Dior wedding dress to get married in Miami. So Eunice Kennedy Shriver wore Eunice Kennedy Shriver's wedding gown. (laughs) And it is beautiful. And she said it was so delicate. It was like, she had to be so careful. It was like the consistency of tissue paper by this point, she said. But the pictures are flawless, and it's just such a beautiful tribute to her grandmother, and you have to go look up the article. So like I said, I read the Vogue one, but it's everywhere. Check it out. You can't miss it. So without further ado, let's get to that conversation with my guest this week. He is a returning guest, John Driver. I was so glad to have him for this this talk that we had. He's a longtime family friend, mentor, author, pastor. He's He's all the things. But he also has a history degree and is a history teacher and is just a really smart guy. So I hope you enjoy this episode. And now I am joined with my guest, John Driver. Thank you for ha- coming on today. Hey, glad to be here. Thanks for having me. I almost said thank you for having me. <laughs> so I've gotten a lot of requests lately from like a lot of them. My inbox is kind of flooded with it about kind of going back and thinking about how the assassinations of Martin Luther King Jr. and RFK and how horrible those things were at the time when they happened, which was 1968, obviously, and how they kind of changed the world a little bit in the way that we thought about leaders or anything, just in general that, and how it impacted the 1968 election, things like that, just the whole scope. Mm -hmm. So I have brought John on because he knows so much more than me about so many things. (laughs) And I don't know, I just thought you were the perfect, perfect person to come talk about it so well i hope you're right (laughs) we're gonna find out (laughs) (laughs) if i get bad reviews it's your fault that's right (laughs) (laughs) so anyway uh let's kind of start i guess with a little bit of the civil rights movement going on in 1968 because when was it april of 68 is when martin luther king jr was assassinated so let's talk about what was going on in that time period i guess in the country sure so i mean the 60s was like this movement of a lot of civil rights legislation and it didn't always work. And so this is a lot of the conversation today about systemic racism versus just individual racism comes from, we, we see that same sort of pattern in the 60s, meaning in 1964, Johnson passed civil rights legislation, 65 Voting Rights Act, 68, I think it's obviously later after the assassination, passes more, but they call that whole time uh, between, I think it was between uh, 65 and 67, the long hot summer because American cities were just burning. A lot of the things you see on the news today were happening, it's very eerie actually, a very similar trajectory of events. And Johnson couldn't figure out why, because they had passed so much, and you've got to realize, radical legislation for their day. Um, And and, and however you feel about Johnson, I know you're not a Johnson fan. (laughs) 
but he was passing. Okay, okay, clarify, clarify, <laughs> clarify. Okay, it's not that I'm not a Johnson fan. Well, no, you, that's correct. I think he probably did some good things because I know I'm probably going to get heat from last week's too talking about him. I know he probably did some good things. I just think he's gross. <laughs> that's literally it, which probably isn't a great foundation for me to judge someone, but I just think he's grody. So that's kind of where my Johnson thing comes well, from. Well, we can have a lot of conversations about how we feel personally about our, our public officials and even how that played into the recent elections. Yeah, true, true, true. And I think that there's validity to it. I'm not sure it should be everything. But to your point, if you listen to like recordings off the like non-official recordings mm-hmm. of Johnson and Nixon, they sound a lot alike. They're very foul mouth, you know, they're and, and they're both very self-serving in that respect. Though Johnson um, did a lot of radical things to advance the civil rights agenda. And he just, he though didn't understand why everything was still burning. And they almost always, by the way, started. It, it started in L.A., in the Watts neighborhood in L.A., and it was it's brutal things that happened. They generally almost always started with interactions with white police, police officers. So very similar to today. And then there would be riots that would happen across the country because of it. In Detroit, I think, like 32 people were killed in the riots. Mm. And so um, I'm, I'm answering your question about how this leads to 68 yeah. because this is all really, really important to sure. understand that there was legislation that advanced uh, the legal rights of African-Americans at the time, uh, but it was not necessarily changing all of the systems that had been in place for years and years, and specifically policing, which we know, you know, a lot of early police systems began as almost ways to regulate uh, Jim Crow and other laws. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's all the way back to the end of the Civil War with the Black Codes directly after the Civil War and, and, and Reconstruction. And so I'm not saying that that's how they all still were, but there's residuals in systems. Uh, there's legacy that goes with with history. And so that's the, the same way for me. Wh- whatever is happening in your life today and my life today, um, I can't extract fully from what happened to my grandfather Like, you know, I I don't know what didn't happen. I can never know that. But I also, it's that butterfly effect type idea. The way that what his decisions or what happened to him, if he would have died, he he was in Germany at the end of World War II. If he would have died there, that would have affected my life. Mm -hmm. But there's no way around it. Um, And so what was happening in the black community, you know, and especially as they interact with police and and lots obviously progress has happened since then in terms of policing and, and social services and those kinds of things. We're just saying that there probably needs to continue to be. Absolutely. And so it was happening in the sixties and Johnson, uh, he actually wanted to ascertain the reason because he really was pretty forward thinking as much as he, you know, again, was an unlikable guy mm-hmm. in your mind, you know, he did, he did some amazing things for a president in his time for a white male president in his time. So, and one of the things was, is he began this commission and at first it had like a name. Sorry, I don't have the book in front of me. I actually ordered the book and I have it at home, but, uh, it was like, uh, uh the commission on, um, it was public unrest or sorry, it's, it's a better name that it had to do with. Yeah. 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 I know what you're talking about, but I can't think of it either. I just read that name. like last yeah. week. Yeah, yeah. I can't think of the name. It eventually became called, it became known as the Kerner commission mm-hmm. because the guy he appointed was the former Illinois governor. His name was Kerner. And the vice chair of it was the mayor of New York City. And it was 11 people. And I'm sorry, I'm not going to get all these demographics correct in my head, but only two were, were black on there. There was only one woman, uh, but the president of the NAACP was on there. And they there were two senators, one Republican, one Democrat. 
two representatives, one Republican, one Democrat. So it was very much a bipartisan thing. And Johnson was like, go figure out why we're passing all these laws, you know, and and what he wanted was that they would come back, the findings would come back and and they would find that there was just things going on individually that needs to be fixed because obviously you've improved so much, Mr. President. And what they found was completely, I mean, they they literally brought in researchers and spent months and they concluded, (laughs) basically, it was a very radical conclusion. uh, They concluded that it was white racism was the central cause of the unrest in the urban areas in America. Mm. And as it was flowing through police systems or through housing regulations through, and they interviewed people and there's like all these very specific, um, narratives and details of what happened in the cities, whether it's Detroit or LA and Atlanta. And they, they come to this conclusion that there needs to be basically a systemic series of changes. We need to address these systems. And Johnson hit the roof. Like he, because it, it didn't make, it was like, I did all this work and none of it mattered, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, so he tried to kind of squash it. He didn't really recognize it, but they released it. And it actually was released as a, as a book and it sold 750,000 copies in the first three weeks. Wow. I mean, it was a bombshell. Um, Martin Luther King came out and praised it, you know? And, and so it, it was like, and, and, and the fact that only had two black people, which is a negative to us, it actually was a positive in my opinion to the report. Because basically a bunch of mostly white males came to the same conclusions. You could like, you couldn't fault it and say, well, obviously it was, it was a lot of black people on there and they, they could have had a racist sort of indictment of mm-hmm. the commission's findings and that removed that. No, these were, and they were, you know, governors and mayors in major cities, they were bipartisan and they came to the same conclusions that we're struggling with today. Uh, Which, sorry to interrupt you, but that yeah. sounds like it must have been so bad that all of them so easily came to the same conclusion, you know, like even across those demographics and things, if everyone comes to the same conclusion, it's undeniable what was going on. Absolutely. And now they, they had infighting, but in the end, in the end, the commission agreed. Mm -hmm. So that's the thing. It it was, I mean, that's, (laughs) that doesn't happen. (laughs) No, it doesn't happen at all. It's unbelievable. Uh, in fact, when I, when I first heard and read about the Kerner commission, like it has radically shifted a lot of my viewpoints of, realizing that we've been here before, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and I know people compare 2020 to 1968 and, and there's a lot of, you know, comparisons that are, are valid and some I think that are not, but basically what happened was, is that it got, it got pushed away. And, and so when, when you come into the sort of this militant 1968, you can't directly tie. And my wife always says this. And, and, and when she listens to this, she'll love that I quoted her, but, uh, Correlation is not the same as causation. I mean, she says it every day when we're talking about things. Listen, we got to remember correlation is not causation, you know. So you can't just point to this one thing and say, well, that's the reason Mm -hmm. that RFK was assassinated, you know, or that's the reason that Martin Luther King was assassinated. But you can, I do believe that there is some correlation to... In 1964, the majority of Americans supported civil rights, the Civil Rights Act. Uh, by 1968, and, and so Johnson went on to pass even more radical legislation. A lot of it uh, had to do uh, with housing. You know, and there, was, there was a lot of different acts under each one of these acts, different parts that they that they uh, play. But um, a lot of Americans were over it. Mm-hmm. By Americans, I mean white America was over it by 1968 because of the burning of the cities. 
like the narrative of law and order was beginning. And that, that's not a phrase you see nearly as much in American history before the late sixties. Uh, but everybody was tired of seeing violence and now you have television. And so the impact of television and that in, in such a broader media where you can visualize and see now black Americans, and white Americans are both seeing this and they're interpreting it very differently. Uh, and there began to become this, this very, um, far right conservative narrative that this is what Martin Luther King, this is what Robert Kennedy, this is what those kinds of people are about. Uh, that who are calling for you know civil rights because they would point to the laws. Hey, we've already passed the Voting Rights Act. Hey, you guys have equality under the law, so therefore you're just now making up reasons to burn cities and to create violence and to destabilize the society. Mm-hmm. It's a very similar narrative. So similar <laughs> that we're hearing today. Yeah. yeah, I mean because conservatism, I believe, hasn't really changed that much since then. This was actually the beginning of modern conservatism. In, in that way. And, and I don't mean, I'm not digging on conservatism. I've been a conservative most of my life and there's certainly a, uh, a continuum within it. Uh, I'm just saying, understanding that whole like need of what's the president's job. Well, you know, right then Nixon began to run and he wasn't quite running yet, but he began to be one of the voices saying that the president's job is to maintain law and order for American citizens. Okay, and that sounds like a pretty good thing. I mean, um, I'm, when you say it, it sounds great. But what? It, it's so funny. I'd read this morning, and I'm, I'm sorry, I can't remember exactly. Uh, it was, it, well, even, even back with the, before Martin Luther King wrote his letter from Birmingham jail, he was mm-hmm. writing it in response to this whole group of of other religious leaders who were saying the same thing, like you guys are bringing violence into Birmingham. Uh, by trying to do this, and even though you're peacefully protesting, so they were, they were saying you're 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 the impetus, you're the spark, and and now violence is erupting because basically police are attacking you or all these things, and you refuse, you refuse to stand down. So to be clear, uh, Martin Luther King, he he absolutely advocated for a nonviolent peaceful protest, but it was meant to be disruptive, right? It wasn't meant to be violent, but it was certainly meant to be disruptive. Um, well, in my opinion, it's easy for Nixon to call for law and order when it's not his family or his babies being affected by what's yeah. going on in the civil yeah. unrest in the world, you know? I mean, if you have no other way of trying to get your voice heard than by obviously causing some disruption, then that's what that's what they had to do, you know, yeah. at that point. So I don't know. No, and I thought of the same thing today, and that's what's that you just nailed it. So when a when a political leader begins to use words like when he says, My fellow Americans, we know that you, you know, want us to preserve law and order for you, mm-hmm. then it's one of the first well, it's not the first time it's happened throughout all of American history, but it's very clear to all the listeners who he's speaking to. Mm-hmm. And especially as you're beginning to develop the suburbs and other things, he's speaking to maintaining law and order for white Americans. Right. Because black Americans, uh, some of them, in this case, they're protesting because of a lack of law and order. Because when they can't trust the policing systems, they can't trust the justice systems, that is injustice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like the ones you're supposed to, even I was reading, and I think it's, you know, people love to quote Romans 13 and talk about obeying the government and all those things. But I was reading a book this week, they're talking about, he says what that God does ordain governments and that the 
they say there that the soldier, but in, in the Roman days, the soldier would be the equivalent of a police officer. And they go through the historical reasons why the Roman empire put policing in place because their empire was so huge. Mm-hmm. And so when he says soldier, it could mean police. It was very similar actually to them maintaining order. And the idea in Romans is that there's this, um, there's almost like this, uh, it is a spoken agreement that that person is there to protect you and to uphold good things. And so that's what, because Paul says, only if you're breaking the law, do you have any reason to be afraid? Paul says mm-hmm. that in Romans 13. Well, when that's, when, when that like little agreement is broken, if you're not breaking the law and yet you're still afraid of those who should be protecting you, then you have crossed over into injustice. It doesn't mean you still, it doesn't mean it won't be allowed even in God's sovereignty, all those things we could you know talk about forever. And I know, again, you see the pastoral side of me coming out on that. So I have the historical and the pastoral. So I, I don't know all the answers to that, but, but I can clearly say that there is, there's, there's a reason that you can rise up and say, this is injustice and, and we're going to stand against it. Mm-hmm. And so that's the climate of that 65 to 67 that's leading to 68. And of course, then you have the assassinations. And I think it's just the breaking point. Mm-hmm. Um, and it really, the Kerner Commission could have been, and this is the saddest, one of the saddest things in history. I think the two saddest things in history for me, besides obviously the moment in, I believe 16, uh, I'd have to find the date. There was a moment in the 1600s when um, it was either Virginia or Massachusetts, they passed a law with, there was a colony that passed a law that allowed people to baptize their slaves without freeing them. Hmm. Because throughout the church history, you were not allowed to enslave a brother or sister in Christ, which makes sense because <laughs> yeah. it's right and biblical. They knew this was wrong, but they needed them. And so they intentionally passed legislation to be able to convert their slaves because they were, you know, again, converting them was a part of the whole reason supposedly they were coming to the new world is to convert the natives and, and the indigenous and, and who they thought of as barbarians. And now they're bringing Africans over. And they literally, there was a, a complicity there that's really disturbing that the Christians there decided we're going to make a law that says we can, we can enslave people and they can be Christians. We can even convert them while they're Christians. And then they begin also to distort the gospel in order to to, to cherry pick parts out to keep them under. Yeah. So there's a sad moment in history that we missed it, that they could have said, no, we stick with our faith, you know, and you could have a whole different ball game of what his history looks like from there. Mm-hmm. So slavery didn't happen. It was chosen. Racism doesn't just happen. It's chosen. Mm-hmm. Even if you don't know why you're choosing it, someone did long before you. Yeah. And that's why you have to understand history and break free from it. I think the other one is the Kerner Commission for me. You have this moment, like you just said, that this bipartisan, mostly white male you know, organization comes together and they conclude something radical for their time. Not even they don't have the internet. Like they're just out interviewing people, coming to these conclusions. They're, they're super smart, obviously, and it just goes away. In fact, it fuels the conservative backlash. It fuels the narrative of law and order instead. And Nixon and other guys grabbed it and ran with it. Especially uh, after the assassinations, there's a leadership vacuum mm-hmm. now. Uh, and, and I think it almost like broke the back of some, in some ways of some of the civil rights movement. Um, you don't hear as much about the civil rights movement in the seventies or the eighties, even though we know things were still 
not going well in that respect. And I'm not saying there, there weren't improvements, but that's why my generation, especially as the colorblind generation, we were taught in the, in the eighties and nineties to be colorblind and to not think differently. And, and that's, there's some seemingly good things on the surface surface of that, but it also causes you to believe that racism is not really affecting a lot of people anymore because mm-hmm. we're all just colorblind and we've gotten past that and there's new laws. And so when you begin to realize there's, there's things baked into the system over time and that, the, and that that shouldn't offend us, the founders intended the system to be amendable and changeable, but we now defend the system. We now defend racism, uh, like we're defending America, you know, and that, that's the sad part when, when like, I don't want racism. America is wonderful and I honor it. And, but it's okay. If it has parts that need to be changed, then the founders intended us to be able to continue to do that. And so they missed that with the Kerner commission. Um, and basically what happens, it went away, Nixon gets elected and, uh, you begin to have the law and order becoming more important than justice. Because law and order was only for one person. Now, let's be clear, because I don't know why you have to do this these days, uh, but we do. None of us are for the destruction of property or cities. But what's offensive, what was offensive to them in the 60s and is offensive to people today is when people are like up in arms about destruction of property and not up in arms about destruction of human life that led to all of those things. Mm-hmm. One wrong doesn't make the other one right. I'm not saying that, but it's not in a vacuum. And if it, you don't need to, when we conservatives began using the violence as an excuse to not pay attention to what Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy and those guys had been fighting for the whole time, and they even had the data finally in front of them. Uh, of course, it was denounced as liberal. The Kerner Commission was denounced as complete liberal garbage, as a rewriting of history. But again, when you really look at who was on the commission, it was not a bunch of civil rights activists. Mm-hmm. They, you know, it wasn't, it, it wasn't radicals and liberals. I mean, they were, they were government officials. I mean, they spanned the spectrum politically. I'm not saying there weren't liberals on it, but it wasn't like that they had a sole voice and, and could just, you know, ramrod through whatever they wanted. Uh, and so honestly, I think that that's the, that's the conservatism and there's a lot of great things about the conservative movement, but that led into the 70s. And it still wasn't tied completely to the Republican Party because, again, in 1976, evangelical Christians voted a Democrat into office mm-hmm. with Jimmy Carter because he was a Southern Baptist Sunday school teacher. So, like, it was, but directly after him, by the time he got to Reagan, from there on forward, conservative evangelical Christians, all those words begin to mesh together in a way they didn't do in the 60s and really not to the late 70s. And that's a whole other, another thing to talk about. But it was key, though, that election was key, though, to someone took office and convinced people that law and order is, is being, is, is threatened by a call for justice Mm -hmm. instead of saying, Hey, we, yes, I understand a governor that has to keep order in his state or a mayor in his city uh, or her city. I understand those things. Um, but to not listen or not pay attention, of course, I'm sure it's a, it's a very famous quote. Everybody knows, but, um, uh, is it Martin Luther King who said that, you know, protests are, protests are the, the voices of the unheard, basically, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, uh, or, or rioting is the voicing of the voices of the unheard. So there's some point in time where we got to listen to those voices. And regardless of people committing crimes, I, I read a book today that said, you know, when, when there's destruction of human life and uh, people seem to want to disregard it because maybe that human committed a crime, 
you know, the deal is there should still be a respect for human life if justice is not done. Mm-hmm. Our job is to do justice. You can't proclaim law and order and not give it to everybody. And so that, that, that was, there, there's the turn. Like, hey, that's fine. If someone, that, that's my buddy Reggie says that, and he's quoting T.D. Jakes. He said, look, if I commit a crime, put me in handcuffs and take me to jail. You know, uh, let me go stand before the judge. Let me have the due process. Don't, don't try me in the street. Don't, you know, find me guilty in the street. Don't execute me in the street while I have handcuffs on. Mm-hmm. And those kinds of things were happening certainly in the sixties. I don't think they're the norm of policing today. I do think there are things in the systems that, that we are, uh, that, that could be adjusted. And I'm not a defund the police kind of guy. Um, I just believe, and I even have friends who worked in mental health, you know, sending police officers to mental health calls, uh, that's a, that's a, that may not be something that they're, they would agree. That's not their specialty and it may not need it. Even though there's danger there, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be handled in the same way you were going to the call of someone who's robbing a convenience store or something. There, there are other nuances that are involved in that. And they seem to disproportionately in urban areas affect uh, black citizens more than white. And there's a whole reason I believe for that as well. I don't think a cop pulls up and thinks, you know, and some do, I'm sure, but I think all the cops I know are, are good, you know, men and women who serve faithfully and don't get paid enough and all those things. They're not out trying to do that, but there are things necess- that may be within their systems, just like within our own church. There are things within church. We are not a diverse church. We are coming to grips with that. There may be things within our system that are reflective of that, that we don't understand or see. So we got to be open to someone telling us about it mm-hmm. or to looking or reading and listening to somebody's opinion. I've been asking people, hey, you know, people of color who've been here or go here or once left here, I've gone to them, tell me your experience. And I've heard things, alarming things from good, well-intentioned people, you know, that this was not a place where diversity could thrive. Mm-hmm. So I have to be okay with seeing that. And I think in 1968, they had that in their hands and it just was too scary. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, man, thus begins Nixon's era of law and order. And thus begins, I believe, a silencing and a squelching of a lots of civil rights from the 60s that you don't see the same in the 70s. And I think resurfacing really today uh, that we could have dealt with then. We could have dealt with in the 1600s <laughs> and right. we've not dealt with, but it's almost like a a wound. Like you can't just, I was thinking about a, if you break through a window and you have a bunch of glass. And I was going to ask my wife what that's called because I watch a lot of medical dramas. You may know. But where you have to extract all the debris from a wound, you know? I would call that extracting the debris from a wound. <laughs> There's a name for it. She's, she's going to kill me. There's a name for it. I can't remember what it is. But when you extract things, like you can't just wrap it up. Mm-hmm. Like you can. It's not going to heal. And you just, hey, okay, fine, fine, fine. We're dealing with the wound. We're acknowledging the wound. Like you're going to have to keep extracting. And that can mean that's the legacy of systemic racism in history. We're going to have to keep extracting the glass from the wound mm-hmm. uh, and not, it, before we expect there to be a healing of it, we can't just be like, oh, cool. We, we fixed the laws. Oh, well, okay. We're acknowledging that that shouldn't have happened to George Floyd. Oh, like that's all good, but there may be more glass in there that we don't get to decide. And, and, uh, I think, you know, allowing the narrative to not simply be in a law and order white voice, um, that there are other Americans whose voices are just as important (laughs) and that, 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 actually is constitutional. That actually is in the Declaration of Independence. And that certainly was the vision, I think, um, that they were going for in the 60s. So, hey, anyway, sure. that's my that's my thoughts no, on No, that's it. really interesting to me, especially, I guess I've never really thought, which I should have probably, but I've never really thought about the fact that, 
like you said, when Nixon did take over, not that it's necessarily all his fault or anything like that, but I'm just saying when he took over, those voices were kind of pushed aside. And that's really sad. I mean, it really is. And that's obviously, like you said, not how progress ever happens is just to suppress. And it's unfortunate that at that point in history, that very niche demographic is the one that held and probably to an extent still does, unfortunately, all the privilege and power to suppress all of the other things yeah. that are going on that they don't want to see at that time. So, no, I really appreciate this conversation, and I think it's very interesting. And uh, I-, I learned a lot about kind of those voices and, you know, the movement that was happening during that time period. So, Good. thank you. I really appreciate <laughs> it. It was my pleasure. <laughs> and uh, I want you to come back soon. We'll I will. talk more. <laughs> I would love it, yeah. Okay, so plug what you want, because John is a writer and podcaster and all the things, so. Uh, so I do a podcast with my best friend. Uh, we just did episode 137. Wow. And and so it's an hour usually, 45 to an hour. And it's so. my favorite podcast ever. Oh, just thank saying. you. So. That's very kind. It's called Talk About That. You can go talkaboutthatpodcast.com. And uh, it, we, our whole idea always was we're just going to sit at a table and people used to go to lunch with us and they would we would talk about stuff like this, mm-hmm. <laughs> but my, but Johnny is a comedian and he's hilarious. And, and so we laugh and have fun. And, uh, somebody one day, so our mutual friend Dane says like, guys, we should be recording this. And so a couple of years later we started recording it. And, uh, so that's what we do. You can go check that out. And, uh, I'm working on a few books. I'm actually working on a book about racism and I'm doing, <laughs> writing a lot of history uh, in it. I'm writing with my friend Reggie Dabbs and, uh, it's, uh, from a black man and a white man's perspective and it delves all of it theologically, historically. And so I'll, it's, it's a long way away. It'll be next fall before it comes out, uh, with, with, uh, Zondervan. So we're pretty excited about that. It, I have oh, some working titles, but nothing I could probably share cause it's not there, but so that's coming out and you know, I'm learning a lot as I, as in, and reading a lot of people who know a lot more about it than me and trying awesome. to, uh, lead people to that. So yeah, that's what I do. Awesome. I can't yeah. wait to read that. And I'd love to have you on again around that time too. So thank you again, John, for joining. Thank you guys for listening, and I will talk to you guys next week. Come on and vote for Kennedy, vote for Kennedy, keep America strong. Kennedy, he just keeps rolling up. Kennedy, he just keeps rolling up. Kennedy, he just keeps rolling up. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts.